This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, I'm Nathan Seam, and in today's Out of the Blue podcast, we discuss a special February 15th, 2019 asthma issue of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. I'm really excited to have two international experts in asthma join me today, Blue Journal Deputy Editor Dr. Fernando Martinez, as well as Associate Editor Dr. Leonardo Fabri. Dr. Martinez and Dr. Fabri, I'd ask you both to introduce yourselves. So I'd start with you, Dr. Martinez. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, um, I am uh, a uh, Regents Professor of Pediatrics and uh, the Director of the Asthma and Airway Disease Center here at the University of Arizona in Tucson uh, in the United States. Yeah, I am, I am uh, uh, eminent scholar and uh, in internal and respiratory medicine at the Asthma and COPD Center in the University of Ferrara and a part-time visiting professor at the COPD Center of the San Gresca University Hospital in Gothenburg. Well, again, I really appreciate both of you joining us, and we have a, quite a time difference in Italy and in Arizona, so thank you for making this work. Uh, the, the first question I'd like to start with, with Dr. Martinez and just ask a, a broad question. This issue, the February 15th issue of the Blue Journal, is a special asthma issue. And so uh, why did the editors decide on an asthma issue? And is there a specific theme to the articles that, that, that were accepted for this issue? Well, uh, the editors had a discussion some uh, months ago uh, regarding which areas of um, research uh, within the pulmonary field and critical care field uh, would be uh, interesting to stress um, based on potential advances that had occurred in the last, uh, let's say, uh, three to five years that perhaps we would uh, be interested in uh, stressing and uh, 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 calling the attention of the scientific community to them. Then based on that, we decided that asthma uh, had really shown in the last year some novelty. Uh, and as I said in my editorial, um, finally, because for a long time, a lot of people were criticizing the field uh, because it was simply the same thing, different distributions of the same medicines that we have had now for at least uh, 20 years or even more. And our impression was that there was uh, new stuff that had come out from research that was exciting, that would have potential to really uh, change the way we uh, not only treat, but perhaps even prevent the disease. And we had the hope that by uh, putting out a call for uh, papers, we would get a set of papers that uh, uh, certainly could not be completely representative of everything that is done, because it would only be seven or eight papers, <clears throat> but at the same time would give us a kaleidoscope of what was going on out there. And we were very lucky that um, uh, scientists that working in the field of asthma took us seriously because they sent some very, very interesting papers that really uh, give us a vision of what is going on today. Again, not completely exhaustive, but uh, probably will come out from this podcast 
um, sufficiently representative of what is going on out there that, as I said also in the editorial, uh, on the one hand gives us hope that uh, we may be on the right path, but on the other hand um, shows that we have still a long way to go. Well, well thank you for, for explaining that. Uh, Dr. Fabri, did you have uh, thoughts about the, uh, the, the special asthma issue? Yeah, I think it was an excellent idea of this uh, editorial board that, by the way, did a great job uh, in uh, shifting uh, the uh, interest of the journal mainly to the clinical aspect of the disease that for years uh, was a little bit underestimated. And of course, you know, basic science and uh, translational research is more interesting and producing more innovative results. But uh, the community of the American Thoracic Society is a clinical community, and I think that uh, it was an excellent uh, idea to have uh, a, an issue devoted uh, to uh, asthma in the week of the national meeting, annual meeting of the American Academy of Allergy and Asthma. Uh, that, uh, uh, in fact, uh, has uh, been uh, uh, mainly attracting the clinical research in asthma in the last few years. And I think that uh, this issue, particularly because it's largely devoted to the severe asthma, has uh, highlighted the clinical aspects of these patients that probably require a pulmonary specialist, uh, even if uh, the new therapy uh, require a, a strong uh, immunological background. So you have to be, you have to study, the pulmonary people have to study, but uh, they are, I think, uh, uh, more familiar with the severe patients uh, compared to the allergy and immunology community that I'm definitely sure they are stronger in the basic science and translational science research, but uh, definitely they are not uh, uh, managing this very severe patient, particularly those with uh, uh, respiratory failure. Yeah, well, well, thank you for that, Dr. Fabri. And that, that sort of leads me to my next question. You know, we all learned about extrinsic and intrinsic asthma during our training. You mentioned the, the immunology. Uh, the newer nomenclature describes T2 high and T2 low asthma. And so since some of the papers in this issue relate to these concepts, and, and some of our listeners may be unfamiliar with these terms, would you mind taking a moment to explain them? Uh, with pleasure, because I actually learned asthma when I was uh, a medical student and then a postgraduate school uh, student of, of uh, respiratory diseases as an allergic and non-allergic asthma. Yeah. Then uh, extrinsic and intrinsic asthma. Then uh, we figured out that uh, among the intrinsic, there were people that have actually well-recognized uh, causes uh, that mimicked exactly the allergic asthma that uh, um, uh, in particular the occupational asthma. So in, my, in our tradition, uh, asthma was an allergic disease of the baby, of the child, of the, of the, uh, of the young. Then, uh, the, you know, with time going on and going on and going on, we figure out that in fact asthma 
is present uh, uh, along all life. Change is epidemiological characteristics. But funny enough, uh, what we thought that uh, the uh, um, uh, allergic extrinsic asthma that uh, we originally studied uh, at the beginning uh, was actually the only asthma with a very precise pattern that was the TH2 pattern where CD4 were dominating, were, up, uh, were uh, releasing, uh, simulating the release of IL-4, IL-5, IL-13 cytokine, and uh, uh, they were occurring, uh, this kind of pathology was present uh, in a young uh, allergy, atopic asthmatics, and it was very different from uh, the COPD, elderly, smoker, TH1, uh, CD8, neutrophil dominated. Then suddenly there was someone about 10, 15 years ago that started to challenge this concept, and we found that people not atopic, with no evidence of allergen involved, that actually had the same pathology as allergic asthma. And uh, a different cascade uh, of, uh, uh, cytokine, of, uh, of cytokine was involved, and this is very well, has been very well highlighted in this uh, issue, in some article of this issue of the journal. And so that you have eosinophilic uh, uh, asthma uh, triggered by stimuli that are not allergen, that are mediated by cytokines, they are mainly involved in this, uh, like uh, IL-33 and others, and that causes exactly the same pathology. The response of these two types, uh, that now has been renamed T2 high asthma, is uh, uh, remarkably similar in both allergic, uh, saying atopic, uh, and the non-atopic uh, subject, uh, even if uh, the second type uh, is a little bit more resistant to steroids. But I would say that uh, this has really changed the subject, and more importantly, we realized that uh, these people were sensitive to targeted therapy against this uh, uh, cascade, this specific cascade of uh, T2 uh, asthma. So we have the development of the new monoclonal that are now in clinical practice and that we will discuss uh, later. Well, well, thank you for that explanation. And, and that leads me into one of the, the papers from this, the asthma issue. So in terms of biologics, uh, clearly their use has been an important breakthrough in the treatment of severe T2 high asthma. The obvious concern is the expense. Um, and I thought this paper by Bateman and colleagues was very interesting in that they developed an algorithm to predict which severe asthma patients with eosinophilia who received reslizumab for 16 weeks would continue to respond to the drug at one year. And so what did the study find? Oh, I, f I think that they found that uh, taking into account uh, the response uh, in four uh, outcomes, very clinical uh, outcomes, uh, could predict the response uh, at uh, uh, 
at, uh, at uh, 12 months. The, so the response at 16 weeks uh, was predicting the response to uh, 12 months. But uh, if you, I would uh, recommend to read the article and the excellent accompanying editorial uh, by Klaus Rabe. Uh, uh, because uh, if you look at the number of responders at the end of the 12 months, uh, it's about uh, 70 to 80%. So the, the, this guy did a very good job at the beginning, before starting the study, in selecting. And uh, the, uh, the score, you know, your right is expensive, but very few drugs uh, gives you a positive response uh, uh, of this size uh, at the end of the study. The marker, this uh, 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 selection, this uh, uh, clinical uh, uh, indicator of response, uh, I think uh, is very good in sensitivity, so it predicts uh, those who will respond. Unfortunately, it's not as good in uh, uh, predicting the negative response, because 50% of those who do not uh, respond that, however, are few, are, very, are, are few compared to the overall, uh, they uh, cannot be predicted by this clinical argument. A limitation of the study is that uh, some of uh, the predicting value are circular. You know, lung function, you take it, if they respond in terms of lung function, they are responders, uh, and then you take that as a success at the end. And so you enter into a circular uh, uh, issue circle that uh, underline, but I think it's a good effort, and it's not just for one monoclonal. They did it for the map, which is what they studied. But I think that each of us would love to, to have uh, this uh, uh, kind of approach, maybe uh, supported by some biomarker that may help uh, to uh, refine this. Uh, predictive uh, clinical index. Yeah, and, and that was my follow-up. I, I, I guess, you know, you mentioned that it, the algorithm just based on clinical um, uh, values such as lung function, quality of life, and, and asthma control was sensitive but not so specific. And I guess, do you see the value of adding biomarkers to the clinical algorithm as a way to increase the specificity? Uh, absolutely. You know, uh, one of the issues is, that is astonishing in all these uh, severe asthma studies is that even the patients are really clinically severe. Uh, the mortality is practically non-existing. None yeah. of the, the uh, one-year study have had a, a treatment-related uh, or unrelated uh, or trial-related uh, death. So we, uh, we dream in a way, we are happy that people don't die, of course, <laughs> but uh, uh, we dream to have a biomarker like uh, glycosylated hemoglobin or blood pressure or LDL cholesterol or whatever that would help you to predict uh, lifelong uh, outcomes like survival or quality of life over time because for the time being the evidence is that this expensive drug and we come back to this issue of the expensive later if you allow me 
this expensive drug have shown that uh, they are effective while they are there, but they, are, they don't cure the disease. I think that that, that, that makes sense. Um, uh, Dr. Martinez, I'd like to move off to another uh, interesting study in, in the asthma issue by Haney and colleagues that looked at whether fractional exhaled nitric oxide or phenosuppression testing that was delivered by remote monitoring could identify non-adherence to inhaled corticosteroids in people with difficult to control asthma. So I guess to start, um, you know, I think adherence is always a very uh, uh, important part of, of, of asthma management. So first, could you explain how phenosuppression testing works? Sure. Uh, we know that subjects who have high pheno, uh, if they are treated with um, inhaled corticosteroids, in a significant proportion, not everybody, as this, as this same study showed, uh, if they're taking uh, the uh, inhaled corticosteroid, they have a decrease in uh, exhaled um, uh, nitric oxide, from the fraction of inhaled nitric oxide that corresponds to the biological effect of inhaled corticosteroids. So what the, uh, the authors have done here is they have set up a quite a clever uh, long distance, quote unquote, uh, um, you know, web-based uh, system by which uh, the subjects uh, at home could record their uh, pheno. Uh, they were chosen because they had a certain level of pheno that uh, justified their inclusion in the study and that they could have the potential to respond to inhaled corticosteroids. And then uh, through this uh, remote uh, system, they determined if they had uh, indeed taken the medicine. So it was a method to determine if the medicine was, uh, was being taken. And at the same time, they used a, another remote system to record if um, they were activating a, uh, um, a, a, a system to deliver uh, either inhaled corticosteroids alone during the, what we could call the running phase or the, or the, or the um, uh, pre-phase, and then uh, inhaled corticosteroids uh, plus long-acting beta agonists during the uh, second phase, which is the monitoring or, or treatment phase for one month. And so, um... And so I guess I found that to be a very interesting study as we, um, uh, you know, look at a, a world in which uh, telemedicine and remote monitoring are going to be more the standard. And so I guess what are your overall impressions of, of the investigators' uh, uh, findings? I, I, I really like this study. And the reason why I liked it is uh, multiple. The first thing is that the study shows very briefly that there are two sets of uh, subjects uh, with asthma out there, uh, a group that having high pheno um, will respond to inhaled corticosteroids because they show a positive suppressive effect and also uh, when uh, monitored for adherence, they showed that they had been adherent. But there's a second group, uh, smaller but still important, that um, in spite of the fact that they were adherent, didn't show any suppression of, uh, of pheno, suggesting that there's something about their asthma or about their, the global biology of response to inhaled corticosteroids of, of these subjects that makes them less responsive to uh, inhaled corticosteroids. The group of subjects who showed responsiveness and were adherent uh, when followed for another month showed significant uh, improvement 
uh, in uh, their asthma um, uh, parameters, both in lung function and in uh, asthma control, if they continued to be adherent. The group that did not show a response uh, to inhaled corticosteroids uh, and were adherent when they uh, were uh, kept on inhaled corticosteroids for another month uh, did not show uh, any change in um, lung function and showed less change in their uh, uh, clinical outcomes uh, than um, through an asthma uh, control questionnaire than the group that uh, had been responsive and had shown a decrease in FENO when given inhaled corticosteroids. In this case, inhaled corticosteroids plus long-acting beta agonists. So the first conclusion is that if you take a group of subjects as those enrolled in this study who were all apparently not well controlled, and this we knew, uh, there is a group that is really not being adherent. And if you can in some way show to them that the reason why they're uh, not uh, controlled in their asthma and are showing symptoms is because they're really not taking the medicine, um, they can, if they're responsive to inhaled corticosteroids, get better. And that's, this is important because one of the criteria, or maybe may the main criterion today, given their cost for use of biologics, is that subjects need to be shown not to be responsive to the combination of inhaled corticosteroids with the long beta agonists. So here could be a way in which we could determine who will really respond to inhaled corticosteroids, and the problem is that they're not taking their medicine. But the sobering part of this study is that in spite of the fact that this was a study in which the patients were told very clearly that the goal was to determine if they were adherent and so forth and so on, a very significant proportion was still not adherent. Even if they were told that they would be monitored and that the goal was to determine is, is, if being adherent, they would be responsive to inhaled corticosteroids. So the sobering part is that this issue of adherence is a very complex, and I take here what Leo was saying before, it's just not only a problem of giving a biological and going home because these are so expensive that treating non-adherence with the biologic today is a losing proposal. We would just bankrupt the, the, the healthcare system. What to do next is, sure, we can use these systems. They're a little bit cumbersome. They're still expensive, the system themselves. I mean, the, the uh, remote monitoring, hopefully it will become uh, uh, less expensive. But the main issue is how do we develop a partnership with our patients that goes beyond just prescribing them a medicine that will allow them to understand the importance of being adherent. I think that's a really, that seems to be the, you know, one of the most important aspects of that paper to be able to remotely monitor them. And as you say, not escalate treatment if someone's just being not adherent and maybe then be able to use different mechanisms in the healthcare system to figure out the reasons for non-adherence. Adherence. Uh, I think, Dr. Fabri, you did want to discuss expense. Did you want to chime in? Yeah, I, you know, the, uh, for the time being, I think, uh, and, and in any case, I think we should be obviously always taking into account the cost of the medication and the cost for the society in, it, in, it, in its complexity. But I, I think that the large majority of severe asthmatics 
are severe because uh, they are not adherent to any treatment. They are simply not treated, not diagnosed and not treated. And the burden of these people, uh, it's uh, uh, overwhelmingly higher than the burden of the medication that we are considering. That one point that, of course, uh, it's uh, uh, very often uh, uh, forgotten. When I made this comment recently about the, the number of deaths that was zero in these uh, trials uh, is uh, most likely due to the fact that these people were treated well, were diagnosed and treated properly. And, uh, and that in general uh, for asthma. But the other point I want to make is that uh, we focused so far on uh, the severe asthmatics, uh, both in pathology, translational uh, medicine, and pathophysiology, and so on. But in fact, there are data that uh, have been reviewed in one of the articles of the journal that show clearly that in people with moderate asthma, you have uh, a, an extremely effective uh, response uh, to some of these biologics. Now, uh, for the reason that I will uh, uh, mention later when we talk about the biomarker, I think that uh, it is not uh, unrealistic to believe that uh, uh, sooner or later we get uh, asthma treated uh, with uh, one shot, uh, maybe subcutaneous uh, once a month or, or, or every two months, uh, and that's it and we get rid of uh, all the inhaler because people will be kept uh, under control. This is not unrealistic. If you get there, then uh, the, 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 the use of these uh, drugs uh, will be larger, the biosimilar the, 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 uh, will be available and the price will go down dramatically like we have seen in other chronic diseases like uh, skin diseases or rheumatoid arthritis or so on. Well, if, I can, if I can add here, I uh, completely agree with what uh, Leo just said. Um, at the last uh, ATS meeting, I participated in a forum in which I, I said, and some people um, reacted negatively, but uh, uh, it's an issue that needs to be put on the table. Uh, that if these biologics cost today or were to cost in the future uh, one-tenth of what they cost now, um, just one-tenth of what they cost now, it would be silly to even propose uh, a competition between medicines that have to be taken every day that if this study shows people even when they're participating in a study in which they're told that the purpose is to determine if being adherent uh, um, has an effect on control. And even in those conditions, they don't take it. That shows to you that the strategy we have now is not the winning strategy, that, that of trying to convince people to use medicines uh, uh, every day, that the real future will be the treatment once a month, or even there's some of the biologics that can be used um, every two months. Uh, eventually. Uh, but unfortunately, there's a problem of cost. They're so costly now 
but that cannot be done. And in a certain sense, the uh, business model of the companies needs to change. They need to put themselves in the idea that if they sell more and they decrease cost of producing these medicines and sell more, their, their, their business will do better than selling less at a higher price. And for that, certainly more competition and regulatory uh, pressure from the regulatory agencies, uh, I think could be a way in which we could get there. Well, I think that this is a great discussion that this, this paper has brought out. And, uh, you know, obviously remote, adhere, uh, remote monitoring has uh, really highlighted the, the point you make that even in a trial, there's such a high rate of non-adherence. Uh, Dr. Martinez, I'd like to move on to another interesting paper that used uh, network transcriptomic analysis to study the sputum of asthmatic subjects. Um, the author's goals, uh, goal was to determine the T2 airway inflammation G networks in T2 high asthma, as we've discussed, as well as study the G networks in T2 low asthma. So could you tell us about this study? Sure. I mean, this has been, as uh, Leo said a moment ago, one of the significant advances that have occurred in the last years um, in terms of uh, in going from the old concept of uh, intrinsic and extrinsic asthma, um, which in a certain sense, if you think about it, had the right uh, intuition in the name of these, um, uh, of these uh, uh, two forms of asthma, uh, to one in which um, we are not so much um, basing everything on allergens and exposure to allergens. In other words, uh, considering asthma as a topic or non-itopic related to sensitization to allergens or not, but to the specific processes that are occurring in the airways that determine in, or that are correlated with uh, the, the symptoms that subjects have. And what uh, Michael Peters and co-workers have done is they have taken uh, subjects with asthma, and they have uh, using gene expression in sputum, first of all, in an unbiased way, um, uh, identify those subjects uh, that, as uh, Leo was saying, uh, have the, two, the T2 type uh, of, uh, of responsiveness, regardless of if they are skin test positive or negative to which allergens or not. And that's the big development. And if you think about it, it is parallel to this idea that uh, there are subjects with asthma that are T2 that may be extrinsic or maybe intrinsic and maybe may related to, uh, to allergens or not related to allergens in the old sense of Rackerman uh, uh, many, many, many years ago. Um, what they also did here was to further characterize within the group of T2 if there were subgroups based on the patterns of gene expression within the airways. And what they found was very interesting, which is to characterize first a, uh, a group that they call hyper T2, in which they practically all aspects of uh, T2 responsiveness were elevated uh, to a significant degree. And uh, those were subjects that would be considered part of the more severe spectrum of asthma. And some of them, given the uh, clinical characteristics, probably were not very responsive to uh, inhaled corticosteroids. Then they characterized other sub subgroups of subjects within the T2 group and identified some new um, cells and cell types that may be involved, particularly cells and cell types that are present in sputum, particularly subgroups of dendritic cells. 
uh, inflammatory and, and classical dendritic cells that uh, uh, characterize two subgroups of uh, genes that were co-expressed and that characterize subtypes of asthma. So what they offer is the opportunity to start thinking within the T2 group uh, that there could be subgroups uh, in which um, uh, 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 specific uh, uh, therapies could be targeted to the type of cells, their gene expression patterns that were find, found to be elevated uh, uh, in these subgroups of subjects according to the uh, gene expression in their sputum. The last important part of all this, and that, there, that there was indeed um, a group of subjects who um, did not have any of the T2 characteristics that we uh, have uh, uh, underlined, that Leo and I have underlined, are, are, are typical of so-called T2 asthma. And in these subjects, uh, without any T2 markers, the most important uh, thing that they found was was a uh, decrease of uh, CD8 positive cytotox cytotoxic T cells. And this is an interesting observation that we will talk about a little bit later when we talk about genetics, which is that now we're getting to the point in which I think we're discovering that response to um, infection is a very important aspect of asthma that acts uh, independently of the T2 uh, phenotype, sometimes combined with it, but sometimes on its own, like in these subjects, because CD8 positive cytotoxic T cells are very important in the responses to viruses. So this would indicate that perhaps one way in which we can better understand so-called non-T2 asthma is to better understand the way in which these subjects respond in the wrong way uh, or in an inappropriate way to viral infections that cause exacerbations and exacerbations themselves then cause remodeling, and you have this vicious circle that uh, severe asthma is part of. It's really interesting. It sounds like um, as you try to disentangle the heterogeneity, as you, you commented in your editorial, it seems it's not, as I guess it's not a surprise to any of us, that it's not as simple as just T2 high and T2 low. Um, I wanted to, to follow up then to talk more about genetics um, and ask you, Dr. Martinez, uh, to talk about an, another paper by uh, uh, Zhang and colleagues looking at lung epithelial cells and ORM, M, excuse me, ORMDL3 locus. And I, I guess before we get into the paper, if you could just give the listeners some background on the mm -hmm. ORMDL3 locus and why it's important in asthma. Well, I, I wanted here um, um, to follow on the idea of <clears throat> that uh, Leo has expressed that uh, these podcasts are, are important because they offer us the opportunity to give a more global vision of what may be going on here. And, and uh, I think one thing that has happened with genetic studies is that there was this enormous hype initially on the possibility that they could almost give us the answers for everything, which I, by the way, never believed and in fact wrote on the, on the same blue journal that this was uh, a smoke and mirrors. I mean, there's no single aspect, not, not allergies, not uh, uh, genetics, not gene expression that can uh, express the extraordinary complexity of, uh, of these uh, diseases such as uh, asthma, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or other complex uh, respiratory and non-respiratory diseases. <clears throat> so once the, the dust uh, settled, um, the same people sometimes that uh, hype this so much started saying, oh, what a disappointment, you know, genetics doesn't take us anywhere. And 
those of us who are old enough know that this has uh, the story has repeated itself with respect to everything, even to single molecule. Oh, this molecule is going to solve us, myo thirteen, this and that. Uh, we have gone through the uh, molecule of the year and the uh, um, technology of the year uh, repeatedly, and we repeatedly find out that uh, they cont everything contributes there a little bit, but there's no uh, absolute solution or <clears throat> absolute explanation. And what I want to stress about the RMDO3 is that this is, I think at this point, as I said in the editorial, it's, this is a bona fide asthma gene. And this is very important. And we have found this, a locus, more than a single gene, that has been now replicated in almost every study in which sufficient number of subjects were included, which allows us to say that here is something that, based on a fixed factor, which is the fact that there is a a gene variant or set of variants that are inherited from their parents that determine increased risk for asthma for a group of subjects with asthma. And this is very important because now, since we have this fixed aspect, we can know how is it that it increases the risk for asthma, particularly in asthma that starts in childhood. And this is really critical because at this point, there's no doubt that this is a bona fide asthma locus. If we understand how it increases the risk for asthma, we will probably understand much better uh, the genetic basis of the disease. So, so then going into the, the paper by Zhang and colleagues, they looked at lung epithelial cells and they found suppression of ORMDL3 led to reduced levels of interleukin-6 and 8 after IL-1 beta-induced inflammation, as well as decreased ICAM-1 expression. So putting that together with the background you just provided, what do you think, uh, could you tell us uh, why this paper is important? Sure. Uh, one of the interesting things that has been found about OMDO3, and there is a New England Journal of Medicine uh, a paper showing that, is that it appears to interact, <coughs> excuse, me, excuse me, with uh, viral infections, particularly a rhinovirus infection, uh, in determining risk for asthma. This is, it's, it's not that uh, it is enough to have the ORMDL3 vari variant for uh, you to have uh, asthma. It, you require also that at the same time, you see probably in, during the right window of opportunity, um, viruses, and especially the rhinovirus, and there is the interaction between having these variants and uh, being uh, um, uh, infected uh, uh, during early life with the rhinovirus that determines the risk for asthma. What this paper suggests is a mechanism through which this can occur. In other words, it is quite possible that uh, it is uh, the fact that uh, there may be an overactivation of uh, mediators such as IL-6, IL-8, and IL-1-beta, and um, uh, during uh, the, uh, and also of ICAM-1, during the uh, uh, infection with uh, rhinovirus, that may be the factor that explains this, what we call gene environment interaction, uh, the interaction between the infection and the ORMDL3 locus. Um, this, is, this is important because it shows us a potential biological mechanism that explains why it is in combination with rhinovirus that this occurs. It is, it is that that is important. But there's a second aspect very briefly, which is that um, ICAM-1 is also the um, receptor for haemophilus influenza. 
uh, in its expression, in, in, in its uh, biological expression in, in, uh, at the cellular level. And we have found out that, that very, also very early in life, subjects who are at high risk of developing asthma later have, lo and behold, increased uh, colonization with homophilus influenza. So going back to what we were talking just a moment ago, uh, here you have this other aspect of asthma that, uh, as Leo was saying a moment ago, is not uh, in any way directly related to allergens or anything of that type, but it's related to the way in which we respond to infection. So here are two parallel ways in which infection comes up as a very important factor uh, in determining not only uh, the um, basis for asthma attacks, uh, of which infection, and particularly with rhinovirus, is a very important factor, but also potentially to determine what are the biological basis for asthma origins in early life. Well, that, that's very intriguing, and, and it, it leads me to the next paper um, that I want to ask Dr. Fabri uh, to discuss, and that was the, the paper by Gia and colleagues uh, looking at Ezrin levels, and I think there are also implications in, uh, with this paper in terms of the link between asthma and infection. But uh, the authors found low levels of, uh, of Ezrin in both an animal model of asthma as well as in the serum of asthmatic subjects. So I, I'd first ask you, Dr. Fabri, if you could tell us why Ezrin is important in asthma. Yeah, uh, before entering into the content of the paper, I have to tell you that I really enjoyed reading this paper. Because this is an old style, Fernando, you remember, of the JCI or uh, cell, I mean, the papers that put together three, four, or five different manuscripts. And, you know, they tell the story. They uh, looked uh, at a um, cytoskeleton uh, protein of the epithelium that all the study published in this issue actually identify as uh, the target, the initial target of uh, uh, external uh, stimuli. And uh, they measure it, uh, and they measure it uh, in humans, in a non-invasive way, in the breath condensate, in the serum, semi-invasive. And also they reproduce uh, the hypothesis uh, that uh, they had about uh, this biomarker in, uh, in the animal model. And they reported all the detail. This is a Chinese-British uh, collaboration, London with Nanzang, uh, I, I can't remember where in China, in uh, Nanjing uh, group. And uh, they found that uh, uh, Edrin, uh, uh, normal value of Edrin are protective. And they are actually uh, associated with better lung function uh, and uh, less uh, risk of infections and so on. Now, in clinical practice, uh, remind, uh, we have uh, three biomarkers, IgE, eosinophils, and NO. That's it. Nothing else. And they have limitations. Now, to have a new biomarker, a novel biomarker that potentially can tell you first in advance whether you are at risk of uh, increased of increased frequency of viral infection 
or with a decline in lung function or worsening of the disease or poor response to treatment uh, is magic. I'm, and obviously, this is potential, but this is the kind of nice paper that we'd like to see because uh, they generate hypotheses and they provide potentially clinically relevant uh, uh, relevant uh, results. Uh, and uh, so I think that uh, this is uh, really uh, useful to have it uh, here and uh, it's uh, really whole, uh, useful also to have it uh, as a model of research. The second point that we did not address uh, uh, so far in the conversation is that this study uh, also has a potential relevance in cystic fibrosis and in COPD. Is a structural protein of the epithelium that is the target, uh, uh, the target uh, uh, tissue part of the tissue that uh, is activated in uh, in uh, both of these diseases. Now, and all the uh, severe asthma, particularly the TH2 high, but also the TH2 low potentially, but so, but mainly the TH2 high. Uh, non-allergic, uh, uh, let's say, uh, gives you the feeling that you have in oncology. You are not studying an organ cancer any longer. You are studying an oncogenic mechanism that then applies to different kind of cancer. We have seen, you know, the immunotherapy that we have seen, the checkpoint uh, that we have seen, the inhibitor that we have seen recently. And this monoclonal, this biologic, and this potential biomarker may give you the, may represent biomarker not only of the disease we are interested in today, that is asthma, but also on polyps, for instance, but also on COPD, for instance, but also probably on uh, uh, um, uh, dermatitis. So uh, I found it uh, extremely interesting and stimulating, both the, uh, uh, both the original paper and the accompanying editorial. Well, I, I think it's great when you put it into context there and the broader implications. Um, I would like to just follow up briefly to, to be clear for our listeners, if you could talk through the you know, uh, Dr. Martinez was, was just talking about viral inf infections and the ORM uh, DL3 locus. Um, what's the implication of low uh, uh, Ezrin levels with uh, viral infections and how do you put those together when you think of asthma? Well, uh, I mean, it, it has not been examined properly. Probably it, they go together, uh, meaning enough. that uh, you have the viral infection that worsens your asthma, so your lung function is down and so on. Okay. But what it would be interesting to uh, think about uh, is uh, that uh, you measure the uh, uh, XL breath condensate. You find it reduced in a person that is uh, at risk but has no clinical manifestation. That would be uh, interest at the beginning, you know, because you may have a biomarker like the HDL, like uh, the glucose, like the 
creatinine that may help you to predict what happens next, and not only in asthma. Yeah, well, I think that that, that, that potential is very, very intriguing. Uh, I, I want to now start wrapping up our podcast, uh, and I've been very fortunate to have two leaders in the field talk through multiple papers from this asthma issue. Uh, and I, I just want to sort of, you know, conclude by where do we go from here? Uh, you know, we've talked about genetics, heterogeneity, um, predicting response to treatment, identify adherence to, to treatment. Uh, and with all this great science uh, in the issue that informs us more, I would ask each of you to pick one important finding, if you had to pick just one from the issue, and how you see it being followed up to further advance uh, our understanding of, of asthma and, and potentially, obviously, uh, treat patients better. I'd ask Dr. Uh, Martinez to start. Sure. I mean, it, there's the embarrassment of choice here, because <laughs> uh, as Leo was saying, there's so many uh, aspects of the disease that have been... Uh, um, uh, stressed by uh, uh, these different uh, articles. Uh, when uh, I, I was thinking about which I would stress, um, one that comes immediately to mind is the idea that there's, there's no, which I talked about before, that there's no single aspect of the disease that uh, completely explains the whole spectrum of the disease. In a certain sense, uh, uh, th this, this is a uh, label under which you have a large number of different conditions that uh, are expressed in uh, chronic uh, um, uh, airflow limitation in many subjects and in recurrent uh, episodes of uh, uh, airway obstruction. Uh, and um, increasingly, we're going to uh, have to um, identify the different uh, um, uh, biological characteristics that explain each of these um, uh, uh, different forms of the disease and treat them accordingly. For me, uh, given that I'm a pediatrician, uh, the most important aspect of this all is the potential to identify genetic variants that interact with environmental factors that uh, potentially could offer us the opportunity to develop prevention strategies. For me, the, the real big new thing in asthma is certainly for us to start thinking in ways in which we can, as we discussed before, uh, treat the disease in a way that is more um, uh, acceptable for patients uh, beyond having to use medicines twice a day, every day. Uh, but from the point of view of a more global public health uh, uh, approach, I think um, exploring further the ways in which genetic variants interact with uh, environmental factors allows us to identify those environmental factors that could be important and act in preventing this interaction very early in life so that perhaps uh, we can really uh, get rid of the disease I don't say in the last five of 10 years or 10 years, as we have been saying wrongly and repeatedly, but perhaps in, during the next decades. I think that's the big uh, objective. And I think studies like the one uh, presented on RMDL3 uh, offer us that opportunity. Well, and Dr. Fabri, yeah. 
Aras, your, your thoughts about something you're really excited about from, from the asthma issue that you want to see uh, uh, evaluated further going forward? Yeah, as I say, the, 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 the issue should be taken as a model. Mm. Uh, we all say that we have uh, to overcome the concept of organ disease. I think that asthma indeed is still uh, an index disease. Uh, usually asthmatics uh, suffer mainly of asthma, less uh, of concomitant uh, uh, chronic uh, or acute diseases. But nonetheless, the approach that has been taken uh, in the studies uh, collected uh, in uh, this uh, uh, issue is actually a perfect model for any other uh, chronic uh, uh, disease. And I think that uh, uh, I learned a lot, uh, you know, by looking at this also for my other area of interest, like uh, COPD or what it is. I mean, are you asking me whether there is an article giving uh, has the hope to cure asthma? The answer is no. Are you asking me whether this uh, article uh, increase our knowledge to better, probably much better treat, uh, particularly severe asthma nowadays? The answer is yes. Is this a, 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 a collection of paper inspiring us future studies for risk biomarkers? The answer is yes. So overall, I have to congratulate the editor, Bishop uh, Eshika, uh, and the deputy editor, particularly Fernando, for coming up with this proposal, timely proposal, and to offer our contribution also to the allergologic and immunologic community. Well, I think you said it very well to, to close this podcast, and I think that this was a, a very informative issue, and this was a great discussion about that issue. So I'd like to thank Drs. Martinez and, and Fabri for a great discussion. To our listeners, you can find the asthma issue at atsjournals.org by searching the archive for the February 15th, 2019 issue of the journal. Please subscribe to the Out of the Blue podcast in iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. I'm Nithin Singh for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine.